Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, Friday the 22nd of April 2022. From the news section... Combustible cladding ban for high-rises announced in Scotland by Anita Badani. The Scottish Government is to ban builders from using combustible cladding on high-rise buildings in the wake of the Greenfield Tower blaze. Ministers have laid legislation in Holyrood which will ban the use of such materials on buildings with a floor that is 11 metres 36 feet or more above the ground. Building Standards Minister Patrick Harvey said the move combined with the recent legislation on firearms, would help reduce the number of people killed or injured in fires. The new legislation will cover flats and other domestic properties, hospitals, care home buildings, entertainment and leisure venues, and buildings which are used as a place of assembly. The changes come in the wake of the Greenfield Tower blaze in London in 2017, in which more than 70 people died after fire spread rapidly, due to the cladding that had been installed on outside of the high-rise flats. Since 2005, cladding used in high-rise blocks in Scotland had to feature non-combustible materials or pass a large-scale fire test. But the new building standards legislation removes the option of a fire test, completely prohibiting such materials in buildings with floors above 11 metres. In addition to this, the highest-risk metal composite cladding material will be banned from any new building of any height, with replacement cladding being required to meet the new standards. Harvey said, This is the third set of changes made to the fire safety standards for cladding in Scotland since the tragic Greenfield Tower fire, requiring any cladding on domestic or other high-risk buildings above 11 metres to be strictly non-combustible. Taken together with our new firearms regulations, covering all homes in Scotland regardless of ownership, This is yet another step on the Scottish Government's mission to minimise the risk of deaths and injuries from fire. The legislation will also make improvements to energy performance standards, aiming to make buildings easier to heat while ensuring they are well ventilated and comfortable to live in. Harvey said, The energy improvements will deliver another important step towards improved energy and emission performance of our buildings, and we will be going further into this in 2024 with regulations requiring new buildings to use zero emissions heating systems. And that piece was by Anita Badani. From the National, Friday the 22nd of April 2022, from the news section. Former child migrant lifts leg on UK's biggest sex abuse scandal. By Nicole Badley. British child migrants who were physically and sexually abused as children at a notorious orphanage farm in rural Australia have had their long fight for justice immortalised in a new book. Reckoning by David Hill, a former child migrant himself, who went on to become the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's chairman, is the follow-up work to The Forgotten Children, which was published 15 years ago. While the earlier book was an oral history of dozens of first-hand accounts 
of the children who were sent to Fairbridge Farm School in Mulong. The latest work details how it sent shockwaves to the British and Australian governments. The child migration scheme between 1912 and 1980 saw about 130,000 children from largely impoverished backgrounds sent from the UK to Australia, Canada, New Zealand and Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia. Initially, all children were sent on their own, but this changed in 1957 when the One Parent Scheme was introduced, which allowed those with parents to have one of them also go to Australia to set up a home and find work. Once the children were legally allowed to leave school, the child and parent could be reunited. The farm school, to which Mr Hill and around a thousand other orphans of the empire were sent, had been blacklisted by the Home Office in 1956, but would continue to operate for the next two decades. The Australian government, the New South Wales NSW government, and the British government are all guilty of lying, denying and covering up and they all got caught, Mr Hill told PE News Agency. Now all of them, all of those governments and the Fairbridge institutions in the UK and New South Wales, they've all acknowledged it did happen. They've apologised to the victims and they'll all get agreed to paid financial compensation. In his 2007 book, which was followed by a nationally broadcast documentary in Australia, we prompt more former residents to come forward with revelations of mistreatment, rape and molestation at the farm school. By the time most of its 200-odd survivors reached a record payout of $24 million Australian dollars, £13.6 million, from the NSW government in 2015, more than 60% claimed to have been abused. Two days later, at the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, IICSA, in London, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown recalled child migration, government-induced human trafficking and a bigger sex scandal than Jimmy Savile. Brown said, this seems to me is probably the biggest national sex abuse scandal. Bigger than what people have alleged about Savile. Bigger than what people have alleged about individual children's homes. Bigger in scale, bigger in geographical spread and bigger in the length of the time that it went on undetected. I'm shocked about the information I have seen. When the IICSA published its final report in March 2018, it found evidence that both the British government and Fair Press Society were aware of abuse at the farm schools as early as the 1930s. It also said, Fairpress UK denied responsibility and was at best willfully blind to the evidence of sexual abuse contained within its own archives. And that was an article by SEO journalist Nicole Baddeley. This article is from the Glasgow Times, date 22nd April 2022. From the opinion section. Cringeworthy corporate jargon heard in call centres by Adam Miller. I'm not sure if I've mentioned it before, but I spent a few years working in call centres. By not sure if I've mentioned it before, I mean have relentlessly relived those years in tweets, columns, podcasts and any other platform I can find in an exhausting and ultimately fruitless attempt to exercise my customer service demons. In that spirit, welcome to 850 words of me talking about life in call centres. Having endured that world as both a phone monkey and trainer, 
I've experienced every emotion it's possible to feel in that environment, from despondent to very despondent. That's not the picture painted by the operators of these establishments, the lobbies of which are filled with images of smiling headset sporters underneath meaningless slogans like turning talent into progress uh, and unbeaten at exporting solutions. Of course, they would prefer former employees not to socialise information in this manner. If you're wondering what socialise information means, allow me to congratulate you on never having worked in a call centre. It's one of a numerous cringeworthy pieces of corporate jargon I heard in those buildings. Possibly with an eye to one day writing a cathartic newspaper column about it, I kept a note of the most excruciating examples. Sometimes you would be going about your day, blissfully forgetting the bleakness of your surroundings, only to be brought crashing down to earth by a sentence like this arriving in your inbox. John believes in building consistent and repeatable operational performance from a platform of highly engaged employees, as well as utilising the energy and enthusiasm of his people to challenge convention and secure market-leading outcomes. All I've changed is the name. I received that email about seven years ago and it still haunts me. Someone sat down at a computer, typed out those words and attached their own name to that email, presumably without shame. During one of my stints as a trainer, a friend and I took part in weekly calls with the client who was particularly fluent in business speak nonsense. After a few weeks, we started inserting our own meaningless terms into the conversation. At no point did the client ever question our suggestion that sometimes you need to put your umbrella up before it starts raining, express reluctance at our plan to take this for a walk across 110% Street, or raise eyebrows at our warning not to go shaking the lifeguard's podium. <laughs> No matter what industry you're in, if you've ever experienced office life, you will at some point have encountered business speak. You will almost certainly be familiar with big hitters like going forward or if you've got the bandwidth. But if you've recently been promoted and intend to earn the contempt of your employees, you might need a refresher. The following are all terms that were genuinely said in front of me with a straight face on at least one occasion. Socialise information. Uh, tell people, basically. During my time as a customer service agent for an energy company, we were informed of an impending price change, the details of which were to be embargoed until the following morning. Our managing director, a man who mistakenly believed polo neck jumpers conveyed class and authority, warned us that anyone caught socialising this information before tomorrow morning will be disciplined. He meant, don't tell anyone, but that would be too much like plain English for the man with a comfy neck. Only one person was disciplined for breaching that embargo given the fact that he made a paper aeroplane out of the internal memo, threw it out of the window, only to see it land on the managing director's shiny head, 
they couldn't really have had too many complaints. Cascade. Who's got the time to say, tell the people below you? When you're a call centre manager wanting to socialise that information, you can't be wasting time on a five-word sentence. No, your order will simply be cascade that. As well as being socialised or cascaded, information can be relayed through tying in or dialoguing, as long as it's confined to a four-wall convo. Lift the bonnet in which we take a deep dive and to discover whether we have secured enough quick wins to ensure adequate buy-in. One day, the people who perpetrated these attacks upon the English language will be held accountable for their crimes. Live the values. Call centres are big on living the values. In theory, this means delivering a professional, efficient service for customer and client alike. In practice, this means being told to smile more while being paid £8.50 an hour to receive abuse through a headset while having your toilet breaks monitored. Action. A classic of the genre. Cult filmmaker John Waters once said, if you go home with someone and they don't have books, don't FM. While I admire Walter's sentiment, I would amend his rule to if you go home with somebody and they use action as a verb, mm, if you're in a call centre and you're using any of these terms unironically, please action socialising your resignation by close of play, preferably. That article was by Adam Miller. This article is from The National, date 25th April 2022, from the News section. Mary's Meals, Scott's Gran Praised for Raising £80,000 for Charity, by Jane MacLeod. A grandmother has raised more than £80,000 for charity by baking and selling a mountain of delicious treats. Over the last nine years, Bernadette Barr, 65, has baked more than 5,600 portions of cake from her kitchen in Port Glasgow for Mary's Meals. She sells these goodies at afternoon teas held in aid of the charity, events which have become a sensation in her local area. Mary's Meals serves nutritious school meals in 20 of the world's poorest countries, many of which are impacted by conflict and natural disasters. The charity, which was founded in a shed in Argyll, recently announced that it is now feeding nearly 2.3 million children every school day. Bernadette started baking for Mary's Meals after taking her mum, Rachel Stewart, to an event held by Mary's Meals. Determined to carry on her mum's good work, Bernadette decided to start baking, with all the profits going to Mary's Meals. She's been holding her afternoon tea events since 2015, raising more than £80,000. Bernadette said, I am proud to be continuing my mum's desire to help hungry children around the world, as well as just about anyone who came into our family home. The money raised will be used to serve meals to 
307 children at Tombay Primary School in Liberia that Bernadette sponsors on her mother's memory. Emma Hutton, Head of Grassroots Engagement at Mary's Meals, said Bernadette was their star baker. She said Bernadette is an incredible woman and a wonderful example of the kindness we see from Mary's Meals supporters across the UK. We are so grateful for all these little acts of love. That article was by Jane MacLeod. This article is from The National, date 25th April 2022, from the Politics section. Nicola Sturgeon congratulates Emmanuel Macron on French election win. By Angus Cochrane. Nicola Sturgeon has welcomed Emmanuel Macron's victory in the French presidential election. The First Minister hailed their shared belief in European values after the President comfortably defeated far-right challenger Marie Le Pen. A message posted on Sturgeon's official Twitter account reads, I am delighted that the governments of Scotland and France will continue to work together in close collaboration on the mutual issues faced by our two countries, such as climate change, biodiversity and our European values. She joined leaders across the world in congratulating Macron, with many breathing a sigh of relief that his populist rival was defeated. Democracy wins, Europe wins, said Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez. Together we will make France and Europe advance, tweeted European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Italian Premier Mario Draghi hailed Macron's victory as splendid news for all of Europe and a boost to the EU being a protagonist in the greatest challenges of our times, starting with the war in Ukraine. Boris Johnson, whose government has clashed with Macron's over immigration and fishing rights in recent years, also congratulated the French leader. France is one of our closest and most important allies, he tweeted. I look forward to continuing to work together on the issues which matter most to our two countries and to the world. US President Joe Biden added, France is our oldest ally and a key partner in addressing global challenges. I look forward to our continued close cooperation, including on supporting Ukraine, defending democracy and countering climate change. Macron won with a 58.5% of the vote to Ms Le Pen's 41.5%, significantly closer than when they first faced off in 2017. He is the first French president in 20 years to win re-election since incumbent Jacques Chirac trounced Le Pen's father in 2002. Le Pen called her results a shining victory, saying that in this defeat, I can't help but feel a form of hope. Breaking through the threshold of 40% of the vote is unprecedented for the French far right. Le Pen was beaten 66% to 34% by Macron in 2017, and her father got less than 20% against Mr Chirac. She and left-wing leader 
Jean-Luc Mélenchon, one of the 10 candidates eliminated in the first round on April 10th, both quickly pitched forward on Sunday night to France's legislative election in June, urging voters to give them a parliamentary majority to hamstring Macron. That article was by Angus Cochran. From the National, Tuesday the 26th of April 2022, from the news section, complaint over Ruth Davidson on BBC remains in limbo after a year. This article is an exclusive by Greg Russell. A year to the day since he first complained to the broadcasting watchdog about a BBC Radio 4 interview with former Scottish Tory leader Baroness Ruth Davidson, a reader of The National is still awaiting an answer from Ofcom. And, in a letter to them on the anniversary yesterday, complete with a transcript of the 12-minute programme segment, John Parker said that the delayed response continued to be deeply tedious and frustrating. He took exception to the World at One broadcast last February 24th, when Davidson was interviewed at length on the anticipated appearance of former First Minister Alex Salmond at the committee investigating the Scottish Government's handling of harassment allegations against him, of which he was subsequently cleared. Although Salmond's appearance was postponed, the lengthy programme segment continued, with contributions from the then-BBC Scotland editor Sarah Smith and political correspondent Nick Erdley preceding Davidson's appearance. She told the programme there were questions about whether Scotland's democratic institutions were corrupt, a claim that was made over five minutes and went unchallenged. Parker, who is English but a long-term resident of Wales, told Ofcom he had looked at their website every fortnight since he first complained. Apart from one brief glimmer on 11th October 2021, when it was reported that an investigation had been launched, there has been nothing. It has been and continues to be deeply tedious and frustrating for me, he said. I can't know why it is taking so long to process my complaint, but whatever the reason, it's hard to believe it's because the issue is awfully complex. Some five minutes was given over to Ruth Davidson making unsubstantiated insinuations of corruption in the SNP government. Davidson told the programme, This has now got to the structure of democracy in Scotland, and whether our institutions are robust or whether they have been corrupted. We have real question marks now over the Scottish Government. We have real question marks over officialdom in Scotland. That's the civil servants. We have real question marks about, now about the Crown in Scotland, which is supposedly independent prosecution service in Scotland. So this is absolutely striking at the heart of how Scotland is governed. Parker said Smith then appeared discussing Salmon's complaints and cover-up allegations. Despite the BBC complaints, people telling me she was brought on so that she could put Ruth Davidson's interview in the correct context and give more information regarding the SNP view on this, it is plain that throughout her segment there was no attempt whatsoever to address the SNP government's perspective and, in fact, no attempt anywhere at all in the whole 12 minutes. I attached my transcript of the segment and will send you an MP3. She said the report went out weeks before the Scottish parliamentary elections while the BBC guidelines stated special considerations apply during the campaign periods for elections and referendums as well as a run-up to campaign periods in some cases involving greater sensitivity with regard to due impartiality in all output genres. 
bearing in mind that the uncontested insinuations include, included allegations of institutional corruption and misleading Parliament, a resigning offence, how much is there really to consider? BBC complaints go through the broadcaster's own processes and Parker was rejected at every level. However, it appears that only now has Ofcom taken it to the specialist team. A spokesperson told us, Thanks for this. I have shared it with our standards team. The investigation is ongoing. In that article was an exclusive by Greg Russell. From the National Tuesday the 26th of April 2022 From the news section Life in Scotland getting worse for LGBT young people, report says by Sean Bell The number of LGBT young people who consider Scotland like a good place to live has undergone a dramatic decrease over the past five years, according to a major new report. Findings published this week in LGBT Youth Scotland's Life in Scotland report follow the latest rounds of research into the experiences of LGBT people aged 13 to 25 across the country, which is undertaken every five years with Scottish Government funding. The new research found that only 64% of participants regard Scotland as a good place to live, compared to 81% five years ago. Asked if they would describe their local area as a good place for LGBT young people to live, only 39% said yes. However, the findings also revealed a clear difference in the responses given by participants in rural, suburban and urban areas, with 62% from those from urban areas answering in the affirmative, but just 36% of suburban participants and 28% from rural areas. While a majority of participants defined homophobia and biphobia as a bit of a problem in Scotland, 69% said they considered transphobia a big problem, whether in their local area or across the whole country, the highest level yet recorded. One participant said, I see it everywhere, whether it be passing comments, social media, newspapers, it's out there. It crushes your confidence and self-esteem. It manipulates you into hating your very essence and existence as you feel lesser and feel like you're a detriment to society. While the report acknowledges it was not possible to estimate the average waiting time faced by young people in Scotland for a gender identity clinic GIC appointment, it did note that participants felt strongly that long waiting lists for this service caused considerable distress. Dr Marie Crawford Chief Executive of LGBT Youth Scotland commented Sadly, overall, things are getting worse for LGBT young people in Scotland across most areas. It is important that young people feel valued and listened to and are supported to be the best and honest self. Doing so allows them to thrive and survive. However, for too many LGBT young people, they experience high levels of bullying, poorer mental health and other inequalities. This research shows that we can take action in our everyday lives to listen to and empower young people. This is particularly true for decision makers in Holyrood and local authorities across the country who can have a big impact on the lives of young people. Responding to the report, Equalities Minister Christine McKelvey pledged that the Scottish Government would work to address the issues it raised, saying, This report is a sobering reminder that although we have made significant steps towards achieving a more equal society in Scotland for LGBTI people, we cannot be, ever be complacent 
we must continue to work hard to make sure that Scotland is a place where young people feel proud to be themselves and where no one is denied rights or opportunities because of their gender, identity or sexual orientation. And that was a report by Sean Bell from The National, Tuesday the 26th of April 2022, from the politics section, Nicola Sturgeon rejects Anna Sarwar's culture of secrecy claim by Angus Cochrane. Nicola Sturgeon has accused Anna Sarwar of a desperate attack on her administration as she denied a culture of secrecy at the highest levels of government. The Scottish Labour leader has called for a review into the Scottish Government's approach to transparency in a letter to new Permanent Secretary John Paul Marks, citing concerns over ferry contracts and responses to Holyrood inquiries. The First Minister has dismissed his claims, describing them as pretty desperate. Giving his reasons for making the request, Sauer said documents relating to the contract for the two overdue ferries at Ferguson Marine were missing. Last week, the First Minister stated it was regrettable that a key decision around the awarding of the contract was not recorded properly. Sarwar also claimed the government was guilty of obfuscation to Holyrood inquiries. There is a corrosive culture of secrecy at the heart of the SNP government, which is risking the principles of transparency and accountability at the heart of our democracy, he said. The ferry scandal and the SNP's shameless attempts to dodge scrutiny and suppress criticism have laid bare a pattern of behaviour that has run through the government for years. After 15 years of SNP government, it would require a full overhaul to put a stop to cover-ups and closed-door government, but the new permanent secretary has a chance to deliver this fresh start. We need a comprehensive investigation into the systemic secrecy the SNP have embedded throughout their government, so we can restore desperately needed transparency and accountability into public life. Speaking in Aberdeen during the STUC conference, Sturgeon told the PE News Agency that Sarwar's assertions were wrong. There is no culture of secrecy, she said. There is an approach to everything in the Scottish Government that prioritises transparency. I think it's pretty desperate for Anna Sarwar to be harking back to an inquiry that concluded a year ago, and perhaps that tells us all we need to know about just how little evidence there is for the accusations he's making. New Permanent Secretary Marks began his role as the Scottish Government's Permanent Secretary at the start of the year, replacing Leslie Evans. And that article was by Angus Cochrane. The National Politics on Wednesday the 27th of April. Prime Minister slammed for avoiding House update. An article written by Xander Richards, political reporter. Boris Johnson has once again demonstrated that he does not believe the rules apply to him by failing to come to Parliament to answer an urgent question from the SNP, Ian Blackford has said. The SNP's Westminster leader had asked the Tory leader to update the Commons following his trip to India. The SNP MP said there is a clear convention that Prime Ministers would report to Parliament after significant summits or important foreign visits. This convention has been respected and followed by all Prime Ministers in recent years, Mr Blackford said. But like on so many other matters, the only exception to that rule is the current Prime Minister. He went on, the Prime Minister failing to come before this House is by no means a one-off. Mr Blackford claimed Mr Johnson had instead chosen to go campaigning for his party in the local elections. I suspect that that won't do them much good, he quipped. 
Mr Blackford also raised concerns that the free trade agreement Mr Johnson had aimed to discuss with his Indian counterpart, Narendra Modi, would impact negatively on Scottish farmers and crofters. Answering in Mr Johnson's place was Tory MP Vicky Ford. Ms Ford said Mr Johnson and Mr Modi had agreed to conclude the majority of talks on a comprehensive and balanced free trade agreement by the end of October this year. She further claimed the agreement would be of particular benefit to Scottish people as it would likely see the export tariff on Scotch whisky, which currently stands at 150%, slashed. Mr Blackford's intervention came as opposition MPs raised concerns over human rights in India. Labour MP Zara Sultana criticised Mr Johnson for visiting a JCB factory the day after reports its vehicles were used to destroy and demolish Muslim homes and businesses in Delhi. Mr Blackford asked, given the many concerns about ongoing human rights violations in the country, what provisions will be made in any free trade deal to promote and protect our values? Additionally, SNP MP Martin Doherty-Hughes asked, did the Prime Minister directly challenge the arbitrary detention of Jagtar Singh Johal, who now faces a death penalty? Johal of Dumbarton was arrested in November 2017 after travelling to the Punjab for his wedding. Ms Ford said the Prime Minister did raise Mr Johal's case. An article written by Xander Richards. The National News on Wednesday the 27th of April. Climate fears for safe Scots drinking water. An article written by Gregor Young, journalist. Water in Scotland's lochs and reservoirs has undergone rapid and extensive climate change-driven warming in recent years, according to new research. The report by Scotland's Centre of Expertise for Waters found that between 2015 and 2019, 97% of Scottish lochs and reservoirs increased in temperature. Most warmed by between 0.25 degrees Celsius and 1 degree Celsius per year. However, 9% of them increased by 1 degree Celsius to 1.3 degrees Celsius per year. Researchers warn these changes increase the risk of harmful algal blooms developing, which could restrict their use for recreation and water supply and as a safe habitat. Waters in the south and east of Scotland are expected to warm the most at first, but the report warns that this climate-related impact will reach all parts of Scotland by 2040. Environment Minister Mary McAllen said, This important research provides yet more worrying evidence of the risks of harm from climate change on Scotland's water environment. It's vital that we do more to mitigate these impacts, to seek to reduce the pace of warming, but also to adapt to it. We've committed £243 million since 2015 through the Agri-Environment Climate Scheme to support land management practices which protect and enhance Scotland's natural heritage, improve water quality, manage flood risk and mitigate and adapt to climate change. The report states that short periods of extremely high water temperatures, known as lake heatwaves, are likely to increase in occurrence, exacerbating the adverse effects of long-term warming. It warns that lake heatwaves are likely to push aquatic ecosystems beyond the limits of their resilience, posing a threat to their biodiversity and related benefits they provide to society. The study says that average April to September air temperatures are projected to rise by about 2.5 degrees Celsius between 2020 and 2080. 
Researchers said that because loch and reservoir temperatures appear to be increasing by 1.2 times the rate of increase in air temperature, this equates to a corresponding increase of about 3 degrees Celsius in Scottish standing waters by 2080. Freshwater ecologist Dr Linda May of the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology and the lead author of the report said, This research has shown for the first time that climate change is already warming our lochs and reservoirs in Scotland and this trend is likely to continue. It provides early warning of the potential impacts of climate change on biodiversity, water supply and recreational use and highlights the need for mitigation measures to be put in place as quickly as possible. The report makes a number of recommendations to address the impacts of warming in the immediate term. These include reducing the amount of phosphorus and nitrogen entering lochs and reservoirs from their catchments, because these are the main driver of algal blooms. Actions such as the creation of buffer strips and constructed wetlands are already underway in many catchments across Scotland, aimed at reducing nutrient inputs. An article written by Gregor Young the National Politics on Wednesday the 27th of April. Daily Mail editor rejects Speaker's call over Angela Rayner's story. An article written by Angus Cochran, multimedia journalist. A newspaper editor who published a widely condemned article about Deputy Labour leader Angela Rayner has refused to meet with Common Speaker over the report. Mail on Sunday Chief David Dillon rejected a request from Sir Lindsay Hoyle after he told MPs on Monday he'd arranged a meeting following an outcry over claims Ms Rayner crossed and uncrossed her legs during Prime Minister's questions to distract Boris Johnson. The report likened her actions to those of Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. In his response to the Speaker, published in the Daily Mail, Mr Dillon said he would not be attending, as journalists should not take instruction from officials of the House of Commons, however august they may be. In his letter he wrote, The Mail on Sunday deplores sexism and misogyny in all its forms. However, journalists must be free to report what they're told by MPs about conversations which take place in the House of Commons, however unpalatable some may find them. He said while the Mail on Sunday had the greatest possible respect both for your office and for Parliament, which along with a free press are the foundation stones of British democracy, the invitation would be declined. Mail journalist Andrew Pearce said newspaper bosses had told the Speaker to get stuffed and claimed Ms Rayner had previously joked about the basic instinct comparison. He told GB News... We put a report in the mail today. She appeared on a podcast with Matt Ford in January, laughing and joking about the Sharon Stone comparison, offering up herself, crossing and uncrossing her legs, causing great laughter in the audience. Where was the outrage? The outrage was confected. He added, It's not for the Speaker of the House of Commons to tell the newspaper or this television station what they kind of can't broadcast or report. So we said very politely, Get stuffed. We're not going. Those claims were rubbished by Ms Rayner. Responding to the latest Daily Mail report, she said it implies today that I somehow enjoy being subjected to sexist slurs. I don't. They're mortifying and deeply hurtful. Earlier in a statement, Mr Hoyle said he wanted to use the meeting to ask that we are all a little kinder, issuing a plea to reporters to consider the feelings of MPs and their families when covering stories in Parliament. 
He made the point that he'd only recently rejected calls to remove the parliamentary pass from another journalist after some MPs called for the Mail on Sunday's political editor, Glenn Owen, who wrote the report about Ms Rayner to have his pass removed. I'm a staunch believer and protector of press freedom, which is why when an MP asked me to remove the pass of a sketch writer last week for something he'd written, I said no, he said. I firmly believe in the duty of reporters to cover Parliament, but I would also make a plea, nothing more, for the feelings of all MPs and their families to be considered, and the impact on their safety when articles are written. I would just ask that we're all a little kinder. That is what I wanted to talk about at tomorrow's meeting. Appearing on ITV's Lorraine programme on Tuesday, Ms Rayner said she'd appealed to the paper not to run the story, based on claims by an unnamed Tory MP. When I heard the story was coming out and we rebutted it instantly, like this is disgusting, it's completely untrue, please don't run a story like that, she said. All I worry about when I'm at the dispatch box is doing a good job and being able to do justice to my constituents and the work I'm doing. So I was just really crestfallen that someone had said that to a paper and that a paper was reporting that. Ms Rayner has also called on the Prime Minister to give assurances he would take action against the MP who made the comment after vowing to unleash the terrors of the earth if they were identified. I hope to hear what he'll be doing about it today, Ms Rayner said ahead of Prime Minister's questions. An article written by Angus Cochran. The National News on Wednesday the 27th of April. Ferguson Marine Ferry Milestone Reached as Main Hull Nearly Complete An article written by Jane MacLeod, journalist Ferguson Marine yesterday announced the completion of a major milestone in the build of one of the dual-fuel ferries currently under construction. Hull 802, as the vessel is currently known, was fitted with its large bow unit, which is the largest single unit added to the ferry's steel hull, completing the bow structure. This week will mark a key moment in the vessel's progress when the final units are lifted into place, completing the main hull and steelwork and making way for the installation of the ferry's aluminium superstructure, which is all the units that sit above the main deck. Over the coming weeks and months, resources will ramp up to around 150 people working on Hull 802 to support the construction effort. David Tideman, CEO of Ferguson Marine in Port Glasgow, said... Later this week, we'll install the final steel block, which will complete the main hull on the vessel. We'll then implement a step change in momentum behind the build of Hull 802 with increased resources over the coming weeks and months to install the units which sit above the main deck. One of the key changes I've made since taking over is separating the programmes for the two dual-fuel vessels. This is to allow the programme for Vessel 802 to progress, irrespective of the schedule and programme for MV Glensanax. This approach will allow us to work towards launch early next year. My aim is to demonstrate that Ferguson Marine, in line with its historic reputation and without legacy issues, has the capability to deliver a new build vessel. An article written by Jane MacLeod. The National News on Wednesday the 27th of April. P&O Ferry European Causeway travelling from Ken Ryan loses power near Larn. An article written by Craig Meehan, multimedia journalist. P&O Ferries has said a full investigation will be carried out after a vessel travelling between Ken Ryan and Larne lost power off the County Antrim coast. 
The European causeway, which can carry 410 passengers, was adrift five miles off the coast of Larne in the Irish Sea for more than an hour on Tuesday afternoon. The ferry left Ken Ryan at around noon and was due to arrive in Larne Harbour at 2pm, but got into trouble at around 1.30pm. It later docked at Larne Harbour after regaining power. No injuries were reported. P&O then cancelled its later sailing from Larne to Ken Ryan. Earlier, the Marine Traffic website stated the vessel's automatic identification system status had been set to not under command, which is reserved for use when a vessel is unable to manoeuvre as required by these rules and is therefore unable to keep out of the way of another vessel. A spokesperson for P&O Ferries said that it had been a temporary issue and the European Causeway had travelled to Larne under its own propulsion. The spokesperson said, following a temporary mechanical issue, the European Causeway is now continuing on its scheduled journey to the port of Larn under its own propulsion, with local tugs on standby, where it will discharge its passengers and cargo as planned. There are no reported injuries on board, and all the relevant authorities have been informed. Once in dock, a full independent investigation will be undertaken. An RNLI spokesperson said that three lifeboats had been sent to the scene. Three RNLI lifeboats were requested to launch this afternoon to assist a passenger ferry in difficulty one mile southeast of the Maidens. Larne RNLI all-weather lifeboat launched at 2.17pm, while Red Bay RNLI's all-weather lifeboat launched at 2.35pm, followed by the inshore lifeboat at 3pm. The ferry gained power again and was escorted back into the port of Larne by all three lifeboats, which were then stood down. A Coast Guard helicopter was also tasked from Scotland and a cruise ship in the area was on standby in case assistance was needed. The Rail Maritime and Transport Workers Union said the incident was deeply concerning, not least for the agency crew and passengers on board. This is the latest in a series of difficulties for P&O, which was widely criticised when it sacked 800 workers in March without notice. The European Causeway was then detained at Larne after an initial inspection by the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency on March 25th uncovered 31 safety failings. This was due to safety concerns after the sacked seafarers were replaced with cheaper agency workers. The ship was cleared to resume serving the Larne-Cairn-Ryan route a fortnight later following another examination. Passenger Johnny Wilson was with his family on the ferry when the power went off. He told the BBC... The emergency lights went on. Different bits of the ship were in darkness. Slowly, we came to a stop. They put the anchors down and we just sat there. An article written by Craig Meehan. The National Politics on Wednesday the 27th of April. SNP slam Tories as millions go hungry in cost of living crisis. An article written by Jane MacLeod, journalist. The SNP has slammed the UK government for driving millions of families into absolute poverty, as new figures show more than 2 million people across the UK sought food bank parcels last year, with 200,000 provided across Scotland alone. Figures released by the Trussell Trust show that more than 2.1 million parcels were distributed to people over the last 12 months in the UK, with its Scottish network providing more than 197,000 food parcels to people across Scotland from April 1st, 2021 to March 21st, 2022. More than 70,000 parcels were provided for Scots children in the same period, 
with a charity warning demand is set to soar. It also warns the figures do not yet reflect the impact of the energy price cap, which rose this month. The charity said it's witnessing signs of an accelerating crisis across Scotland, following the £20 a week cut to universal credit and the soaring rise in living costs. SNP Work and Pension spokesperson Kirsty Blackman MP commented, The UK government should hang their head in shame. Cruel and callous cuts are driving millions of families into absolute poverty, as demonstrated by these figures. After decades of Tory austerity, callous cuts, stagnated wages and railroading through a botched Brexit deal, this crisis has been long in the making. The Scottish Government has created an ambitious strategy to tackle child poverty. However, Westminster seems determined to drag more children and families into hardship. The SNP has more than doubled the Scottish child payment and uprated a range of Holyrood-administered benefits by 6%, while the UK Government slash universal credit and hike taxes on the lowest earners. The only way to keep Scotland safe from more cruel Tory cuts and to make food banks a thing of the past is to become an independent country with the full powers needed to build a fairer and more prosperous future. Polly Jones, head of Scotland at the Trussell Trust, said We should all be free from hunger. No one should be pushed deeper into poverty without enough money for the things we all need. And yet, people are telling us they're skipping meals to feed their children and turning off the heating so that they can afford internet access for their children to do their homework. She added, but there's still time for governments at every level to do the right thing. That's why we're urging the UK government to make benefits realistic for the times we face and calling on the Scottish government to use its powers to do all it can to support people on the lowest incomes. Social Justice Secretary Shona Robeson said the Scottish Government has taken significant action to support people, adding, We will also continue to promote a cash-first approach so that people can access food and other essentials with dignity and choice. She said that while there's been a second year-on-year reduction in food parcels in Scotland, there's more to do to ensure that no one has to go hungry or rely on charity to eat, and added, the UK government must show the same level of ambition and take urgent action. An article written by Jane MacLeod. The National. Politics. On Wednesday the 27th of April. UK-US trade deal not dead, officials say, after further talks held in Aberdeen. An article written by Ninian Wilson. The prospect of a UK-US free trade deal is not dead, officials from the two countries said as they concluded another round of talks aimed at bolstering transatlantic investment. International Trade Secretary Anne-Marie Trevelyan and her US counterpart Ambassador Catherine Tai said that they discussed ways to make the £200 billion trade partnership even stronger during their two-day talks in Aberdeen and London. It comes as progress has stalled on a post-Brexit trade agreement, with the government switching its focus to making arrangements with individual US states in a bid to assist UK businesses. Asked if an overarching deal is dead, Ms Tai told reporters at the Department for International Trade in Whitehall on Tuesday, Well, that's awfully dramatic. I think that what you see is the same spirit of partnership that we think should be in the US-UK relationship. We've spent a lot of time investing in this relationship, building it up over the course of the last year. This partnership is strong. You see it in so many different ways, not just in trade, but also on the foreign policy and security side. 
She highlighted the resolution of the Airbus-Boeing dispute and the partial lifting of tariffs on British steel and aluminium imposed by former US President Donald Trump in recent months. US President Joe Biden has previously expressed concern over the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is aimed at avoiding a hard border with Ireland, but has created a series of economic barriers on Irish sea trade. Asked if talks on a US-UK trade deal could take place while this remains unresolved, Ms Tai said her country is watching the issue closely. We in the United States respect and value and commit to the Good Friday Agreement and its legacy. I've heard the same values there from the Secretary of State. She said the pair had had very candid discussions on the topic and that Ms Trevelyan had been very forthright with me in our conversations. It's an area where we continue to urge the UK and the EU to channel their best selves in terms of cooperation and courage, and we support them in that, the US Trade Representative said. Britain is expected to sign its first economic pacts with American states next month and secure an arrangement with Texas by October, Trade Minister Penny Mordaunt told the House of Commons last week. This week's talks were aimed at paving the way for further engagement with the US, including ongoing work at a state level and removing barriers to trade. Ms Trevelyan said the talks had involved a really great series of propositions and asks and philosophical discussions about what sort of concrete action we should all be taking to make that UK-US relationship even stronger. She noted the countries were working together to support small and medium enterprises as well as young women and minority groups who are starting businesses, developing worker-centric policies, strengthening supply chains and focusing on digital and green trade. The second transatlantic dialogue began on Monday in Aberdeen, where the pair were joined by leaders from Scottish and UK governments as well as trade unions and business. The pair are set to develop a roadmap of trade talks and will further discuss small and medium businesses in Boston in June. An article written by Ninian Wilson. The National News on Wednesday the 27th of April. Aberdeen City Council branded a laughingstock as Union Terrace Gardens project delayed. An article written by Hamish Morrison, political reporter. The launch of a landmark project has turned into an embarrassing blunder for a better together council after its soft opening was delayed while the area remained a mudbath. The Union Terrace Gardens were due to be partially revealed to the public yesterday morning after three years of major redevelopment work, but was called off at the last minute by the Tory and Labour-controlled Aberdeen City Council. It's an embarrassment for the local authority, which said it had hoped a small section of the garden would have been suitable to be unveiled to show off progress on the £28.3 million project. The area remains under construction and pictures taken at the scene show machines still working on the building site. Kevin Stewart, the SNP MSP for Aberdeen Central, slammed the shambolic attempts to reopen the park. He told The National... I'm surprised it's taken until this late in the day for the administration to listen to sense and postpone this ridiculous early opening. It would have suited nobody to open the gardens to the public at a time when they're a mudbath, and it would have done untold damage to the reputation of the council and this city. I'm worried that the postponement was only announced on the day of the planned opening, though. I fear we may yet see another shambolic attempt to open Union Terrace Gardens before the elections. 
He added, the Tory-led administration have some cheek to blame this on supply chain issues, though, given it was their government that imposed Brexit on us and caused these. Council officials and the construction company involved have blamed supply chain issues. Guy Ingerson, a Greens candidate in the city, said the debacle would erode trust in the council because people could see with their own eyes it wasn't going to be ready. He added, it's an active building site, there's barely a tree on site now and it's essentially a mud pile. The Aberdeen Labour Tory administration should be embarrassed. It was clearly an election ploy and it's turned into not only a PR disaster for them, but a PR disaster for the city. It makes the city look really bad. Aberdeen City Council Chief Executive Angela Scott said, The decision not to proceed with today's soft opening followed advice from our construction partner, Balfour Beatty. The council is naturally disappointed that the event can't go ahead, but we look forward to the full opening in due course. A Balfour Beatty spokesperson said, External factors such as COVID-19 and more recently material supply issues continue to disrupt construction projects across the UK. As we move towards the anticipated completion of Union Terrace Gardens this summer, we continue to work with our supply chain to minimise these effects. An article written by Hamish Morrison. Recorded from the National on the 27th of April 2022, from the Culture section, Lives of the Outsiders Never Felt as Poetic as Scotland's Bell and Sebastian Make a Return, by Simon Coates. It's seven years since Bell and Sebastian's last studio album, Girls in Peacetime Want to Dance, and while there have been some bandside projects and almost immeasurable changes in the world in between, Bell and Sebastian still remain faithful to their original palette, the one that has served them well since their debut set, 1996 Tiger Milk. This is a band whose music has always worked as a support system for those who dreaded school sports day and kept well-thumbed poetry volumes on their nightstand, and they continue to put an arm around the self-proclaimed outsiders whose daydreams are peppered with soft-focused ideals and wishes for a kinder world. In the linear, liner notes for a, a bit of previous, Bell and Sebastian vocalist and songwriter Stuart Murdoch explains that the title is a recognition that we could have been here before and that we should treat people that we don't know with care and respect, because who knows, we might have already met them in some earlier incarnation. We probably all got a bit of previous. The Bell and Sebastian care package has always included the will to embrace and overcome awkwardness, and a bit of previous comes ready mixed with assuring and mollifying re- reflections. Bell and Sebastian's world is one where, oh the thought, letters are handwritten and treasured, conversations take place face-to-face in parks at twilight, and there isn't a Zoom meeting invite in sight. This isn't a skewing of modern modernity, though, it's a celebration of human communications. A swirling folky violin reels around opening track Young and Stupid, as Murdoch croons of the advantages of being youthful, unhindered by the nagging realities of grown-up life. Do It For Your Own Country is a sedate, acoustic, guitar-led story of hope, encouragement and overcoming self-doubt, and Prophets on Hold celebrates the art of the simple phone call to a friend to help them work things out. Co-vocalist Sarah Martin takes the lead on Reclaim the Night, as sparkly keys and a stuttering drum machine underpin a simple plea for women's safety. Reclaim the night, don't lose another, she sings, and cross the street. Here's someone close behind you. Turn day to night, stay undercover. There are tootling horns and hand claps on If They're Shooting At You, as Murdoch sings of keeping your chin up. If they're shooting at you, he points out, you must be doing something right. 
In terms of pace, a bit of previous switches between Country Waltz, Deathbed of My Dreams, Lounge Jazz, Come On Home, and Tumbling, Synth Led Disco, Talk To Me, Talk To Me. A World Without You, with its suggestion of leaving all your troubles behind you and running towards the sunset, is how Beach House might sound if they were from Lanarkshire, not Maryland. An unnecessary drama comes on like a stone-cold indie disco classic, all flailing arms, floppy hair and switching satchels. A hand-in-glove with added soaring harmonica. In 2020, Bill and Sebastian were all set to fly to Los Angeles to record the follow-up to Girls in Peacetime Want to Dance. Tracks had been written and the band was rearing to go. We all know what happened next. However, instead of simply postponing the project, the band decided to stop and take stock and to embrace their home city of Glasgow. They cobbled together a studio, new songs emerged. This was the first time Bell and Sebastian had recorded an entire album in Glasgow since 1999's Fold Your Hands Child, You Walk Like a Peasant. A bit of previous is the result. Warm and hopeful, this is the sound of friends back together. Bell and Sebastian's A Bit of Previous is released on May 6th on CD and LP on the Matador Records label. That article was by Simon Coates. Recorded from the National on the 27th of April 2022. From the Culture Section, King of Scots Fiddler's Rich Musical Legacy Remembered at Edinburgh Tradfest by Nan Sport. Known as the Strathspace King, he played in front of Queen Victoria, but at one point James Scott Skinner was so poor he wrote his iconic tunes on the back of envelopes. It is now a hundred years since Skinner below last recorded his compositions, but his memory lives on in a new CD called The Strathspace Queens, being launched during Edinburgh's Tradfest. The tribute to Skinner, who became one of Scotland's most influential fiddlers, is from talented young Scots Alice Allen and Patsy Reid, the youngest ever winner of the prestigious Glenfiddich Fiddle Championship. Allen from Bankery is a cellist, as was Skinner when he first started out, even though he later made his name as a fiddle player. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the cello was central to dance music, but from the 20th century onwards, it had disappeared from traditional music in Scotland. Only in the past three decades has it been revived by the likes of Natalie Haas and other North American trailblazers. Skinner began his playing career accompanying tunes on the cello for dances, playing repetitive bass lines for hours on end at the young age of eight, and wearily trudging across the Aberdeenshire countryside lugging his cello in tow. Born in Bankery in 1843, he was the youngest of six children. His father, William, made a living as a dance teacher, but died when Skinner was just two years old. It was his brother, Alexander, who taught him cello and violin, and Skinner was soon good enough to start playing at local dances. His talent was eventually spotted by a Manchester-based touring orchestra who recruited him and he performed with the group for six years, including in a command performance before Queen Victoria at Buckingham Palace when he was 15. During this period, he learned to play classical tunes and took a year's dancing tuition so he could become a dance master like his father. He returned to Aberdeenshire to teach and burnished his credentials by winning dance competitions until his growing reputation came to the attention of Queen Victoria, who requested him to teach the royal household at Balmoral. He continued to compose tunes, publishing his first collection in 1868. Three more collections were published in the 1880s before he toured the US with renowned dancer and piper Willie MacLennan. Returning to Scotland in the early 1890s, he gave up dancing and concentrated on the fiddle, writing some of his best work during that period. His first cylinder recordings were made in 1899, and in 1903 he wrote Hector the Hero, which became one of his best-known tunes. 
It was a lament for his friend, Scottish Major General Hector MacDonald, who killed himself following allegations of homosexuality. Despite the popularity of Skinner's tunes, he had so little money at the time that he could not afford to publish any more, so he wrote them on scraps of paper for friends who played them to try to create a market. By 1922, enough money had been found to record a collection of tunes called The Strathspace King, and two years before his death in 1927, he was still the top billing on five tours of the UK. However, an attempt to enter a jig, wheel and jig competition in the US in 1926 apparently ended in disaster when Skinner had musical differences with the pianist and walked off stage without finishing. He died on March 17th the following year without giving another public performance. He was buried in Aberdeen where his gravestone was unveiled by Sir Harry Lauder. Reed and Allen hope their new CD, which will be launched at the Traverse Theatre on May 5th, will breathe new life into his tunes so that they last for another hundred years. Skinner sounded like a, such a character, self-proclaiming himself as the Strathspey King, said Reed, who had been playing his tunes since she started to play fiddle music at, at about the age of ten. Since embarking on this project with Alice, I've loved revisiting his recordings, and he really had style and great charisma in his playing, which I think is important to hear alongside the many publications of his tunes. Unfortunately, the nature of competition in writing music down means that things can become stale and samey, and to a certain extent there is lots of cloning going on, where people have aspired to sound a certain way. My realisation through listening to Skinner again is that he in fact played as an individual, and that is what should not be forgotten when we put these players and their music on a pedestal. The tradition must continue to evolve, and we are so lucky to have these old recordings to refer to, as well as the ability to record ourselves and add our snapshots to history. Edinburgh Tradfest runs from Friday to May 9th and is returning to live performance after the pandemic. EdinburghTradfest.com That article was by Nan Sport. The National, April 28 Author has a perfect response for trolls attacking his Scots speech to the Scottish Parliament. Report by Jay McLeod. Author and broadcaster Billy Kay has hit back at unionist trolls who criticised him for delivering a speech in Scots to the Holyrood Parliament. On Tuesday afternoon, the Scots language campaigner presented the Time for Reflection address to MSPs. The segment, held every Tuesday afternoon at the start of house business, sees different speakers invited from outside the Parliament to address members briefly, normally on issues of faith. Kay was invited by SNP MSP Emma Harper to deliver the address, which was the first one ever presented in Scots in the history of devolution. The author of Scots, The Mither Tongue, took the opportunity to highlight the importance of the Scottish Parliament promoting the language and gave multiple examples of Scots words rarely heard in the chamber. Kay also called for further use of Scots in the curriculum, telling MSPs Bairns like the quaint wee lass in primary two in Falkirk, who ran a loupid into her teacher's arms, looking and greeting with joy, when she first heard her mother tongue in class or the sweat learners in Dundee, 
Do your teenage boys who get to the top of the class for the first time, when the language they raised all kadee come into the school and books they then delivered? Ah, never look it back. Scottish wains transformed learning a Scottish late. Kay's speech was welcomed by politicians and cultural figures. SNP culture spokesperson at Westminster, John Nicholson, said it was a fabulous address and added it proved why Scots should be made an official national language and taught more extensively. Public Finance Minister Tom Arthur said Kay provided a beautiful, inspiring and thought-provoking speech. Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville commented, bringing Scots to the heart of our Parliament, just as it should be. Another commentator added, Over the years I've lost most of the Scots I grew up with. Why? Because it was inferred to me that it was in my best interest. And so today I hear a speech in my own tongue. But despite the floods of support, footage of Kay's address prompted a barrage of unionist trolls to attack him. Some users accused Kay of speaking a made-up language, branding him an embarrassment, while others claimed Scots was gibberish. And one senior Labour member commented, Literally, nobody in Scotland speaks like this. What a clown. Following the backlash, with the clip viewed tens of thousands of times, Kay had an apt response from Burns, whose use of Scots has long been celebrated. Thanks to everybody that gave me support for the speech at the Parliament. Our money to thank personally, he wrote. As for the trolls and Scots deniers, here's Burns. The mere they talk, I'm kent the better. Ain't let them clash. An old wife's tongue a feckless matter to gay in fash. He later added, One of the bizarre responses to the speech is that it was political, whereas there were equal benign references to all the parties so that they all felt included. For unionist trolls, any expression of Scottish culture and identity nowadays makes them go berserk with fury. MSP Harper, who had invited Kay initially, on Tuesday night said the speech had shown the vital importance of promoting Scots. Jackie Dunbar and I have pressed the Parliament to approve its approach to using and promoting Scots on the Parliament campus, and we have met with the Scottish Government to discuss the Scots Language Act, which was committed to in the SNP 2021 Manifesto. I again thank Billy for his fantastic Time for Reflection address, and I encourage everyone to watch it and to play their part in helping to raise the profile of one of our national languages. Report by Jane MacLeod The National, April 28 Scottish Census 2022 deadline to be extended Report by Angus Cochran The deadline to complete the Scottish Census is to be delayed due to a lack of responses, it has been reported. Around a quarter of forms were yet to be filled in as of last weekend 
accounting for 700,000 households. Responses were due to be completed by Sunday, but the Telegraph reports Constitution Secretary Angus Robertson will announce a four-week extension in Parliament on Thursday. It is feared that a low response rate could compromise the results, which are vital for issuing public funds and setting policies. A spokesman for National Records of Scotland, the NRS, which runs the survey, said, Our focus continues to be on supporting and enabling remaining households to complete their census return by the start of May, adding to the over 2 million households across Scotland that have already done so. Earlier this week, Robertson warned it was absolutely essential that Scots complete the survey as it was revealed 700,000 of 2.7 million households were yet to do so. Those who have not completed the census face prosecution and a fine of up to £1,000. Last year, the Scottish Government pushed back the census, which is run every decade by 12 months, citing concerns about the effect of the pandemic on responses. Ministers said the decision would ensure the highest possible response rate. The Auditor General for Scotland said in November that the decision led to a £21.6 million increase in costs for the NRS against the pre-pandemic estimate of £117 million. The increase was covered by the government. In the rest of the UK, the survey went ahead as normal in 2021 with a 97% response rate. Lindsay Patterson, Professor of Education Policy at the University of Edinburgh, raised concerns about postponing the deadline. He told The Telegraph, Extending the window for responding raises worrying questions about data quality. In normal social surveys, there are strict quality controls on the time given to respond. This is because people vary in how they respond especially for opinion questions, such as the several identity questions in the census. For example, how people answer the question about gender identity might vary according to whether some controversy about gender identity is in the news. The same is true of national identity and ethnic identity. As a social statistician, I would not use census data on identity that had such an arbitrary varying window of replying. Report by Angus Cochrane. The National, April 28. Charities call government's bluff on rainforest restoration. Report by Richard Baines. Environmentalists are demanding a £500 million commitment from the Scottish Government to make good its pledge to save the country's unique rainforest. Key green charities are ramping up the pressure on the Scottish Government to make good a COP26 pledge to save the temperate rainforest 
ahead of a keynote speech tonight on the topic by Marie McCallum, Scotland's Minister for Environment, Biodiversity and Land Reform. Woodland Trust Scotland, Plant Life Scotland and RSPB Scotland say a commitment now to the huge sum is needed to save the key habitat, home to a unique and globally important collection of lichens, liverworts, mosses and other wildlife. At the COP26 climate talks, McAllen pledged Scotland's Atlantic rainforest would be saved, saying, we want to protect and expand this precious environment and we have committed to do so in the life of this Parliament. The Green Group's Hope McAllen will announce substantial support tonight, but are concerned it might not be enough to do the job properly. They say the government should put up at least £250 million in taxpayers' cash, which would enable the charities to work with officials to lever in the rest of the cash from other sources and start to restore the rainforest over the next 10 years. As well as being essential to retain and enhance biodiversity, the restored woodlands will help absorb carbon and further the fight against climate change. Tim Hall, Head of Estates and Programmes at the Woodlands Trust Scotland said, The Scottish Government made a commitment to rainforest action during COP26. Woodland Trust Scotland, Plant Life Scotland and RSPB Scotland warmly welcomed this commitment. But as we wait to hear how that pledge will be delivered, we feel it is important to stress there is no cheap solution. We estimate the scale of investment to restore this precious habitat to be around £500 million over at least 10 years. This is the kind of investment needed to secure ecosystem restoration and reverse the decline of Scotland's rainforest. This money will pass through local communities supporting green jobs in economically fragile areas, so should be looked on as an investment in the future of people, nature and climate. Without funding of this order, Scotland's rainforest will be lost, not expanded. Scotland has Europe's last substantial rainforest, and like the Amazon or other tropical rainforests, the temperate rainforest here is home to a vast array of interdependent life. It used to run in a swathe down the country's west coast, from Cape Wrath to Campbelltown. Only about a fifth remains, much of that in poor condition as a result of overgrazing and invasive species. The remaining area totals around 70,000 acres. Of the £500 million price tag suggested, around half would be needed just to deal with invasive alien rhododendron ponticum in the west, which is overwhelming large areas. Scotland's invasive roddies are a cross between the Mediterranean ponticum 
and cold-hardy North American varieties of rhododendron, perfectly suited to the cool, damp climate. They shut light out from the forest floor and eventually take over forests. Removing them is a labour-intensive business, as each stem has to be cut out and burned, and the stump injected with weed killer. The rest of the £500 million estimate would be needed for deer management, conservation grazing, planting new trees and other hands-on conservation work, plus the administration planning and other backup to make the scheme work. Forestry consultant and rhododendron clearance expert Gordon Gray Stephen made the cost estimates for the charities. He said, I'm an optimist. I believe there are compelling reasons for the Scottish Government to act on this. So I have a strong hope and believe they will come up with substantial sums. It should have been done sooner. The Roddy problem grows exponentially and every delay makes matters worse. McAllen will give the keynote speech to the Alliance for Scotland's Rainforest Group at an event tonight at the Royal Botanical Society in Edinburgh. The Alliance is made up of charities, including those calling for the cash injection, other independent organisations such as Landowners Group, Scottish Land and Estates, and government agencies including Nature Scott, Forestry and Land Scotland and Scottish Forestry. A number of projects are underway under the Alliance banner to restore areas of rainforest, but at the moment the government is only spending a total of around £2 million a year on rhododendron clearance. Deer control is overseen by local deer management groups made up of landowners who may want deer numbers kept high because of their stocking business. Report by Richard Baines The National, April 28 Scott Wind Projects to bring £25 billion boost to Scottish supply chain Report by Ninian Wilson the Scottish supply chain will see a £25 billion investment as part of the Scott Wind project, according to developers. As part of the initiative, 17 areas of Scotland's seabed have been leased to major energy companies with a view to building offshore wind farms. The Scottish Government netted almost £700 million through the signing of the contracts, but claimed there would be a multi-billion pound benefit to Scotland's supply chains and jobs market as a result of the developments. Crown Estate Scotland, who ran the leasing project, mandated that developers lay out their projected financial commitments to Scotland. In documents published on Wednesday, almost £25.5 billion in commitments have been outlined, an average of just under £1.5 billion per development. Energy Secretary Michael Matheson said, As the world's largest offshore wind leasing round, Scotwind puts us at the forefront of the global development of offshore wind 
and represents a massive step forward in our net zero transformation. The publication of these supply chain outlooks demonstrates the truly unprecedented scale of the opportunities that this leasing round will present, not just for our regional and national economies, but to deliver a true just transition for our energy sector, harnessing existing talent and expertise and creating and delivering good green jobs across Scotland's supply chain. There will be some challenges to overcome as we embark on this exciting expansion in renewable energy, such as grid capacity and unfair transmission charging. The Scottish Government does not have the power to resolve all these challenges, but we will continue to work with and, where appropriate, challenge the UK Government to address these barriers and ensure a just transition to net zero. Developers were also asked to outline their supply chain ambitions for Scotland, meaning the amount of money they hope to spend in the country to build, erect and maintain the wind farms. In total, the documents outlined up to £36.5 billion in ambitions from developers, some £2.1 billion on average for each of the 17 projects. Colin Palmer, Director of Marine at Crown Estate Scotland, added, The breadth and scale of these initial commitments from Scotwind developers is encouraging, as is their ambition to help Scotland reach net zero. However, the challenges in delivering on these ambitions, which will evolve as project details become clearer, should not be underestimated. It will require a truly collaborative approach from all involved to ensure the huge potential for transformative economic development, job creation and a just transition is realised. Report by Ninian Wilson Recorded from the National on the 28th of April 2022 from the Culture section, BBC EastEnders and Doctor Who star Anne Davis dies aged 87 as fans pay tribute by Kieran Doody. BBC EastEnder and Doctor Who star Anne Davis has passed away at the age of 87, her agent has confirmed. The 87-year-old who is married to the Good Life star Richard Briars will be very much missed by her daughters Lucy Briars of ITV's Endeavour and Katie. Her agent Barry Langford confirmed the news on social media that his client of 34 years had sadly passed away. Agents pay tribute as Anne Davis dies aged 87. He said, sadly, my lovely client of 34 years, Anne Davis, passed away yesterday. A superb actress with TV credits including Hashtag Doctor Who and Hashtag The Sculptress, Anne was devoted to her beloved late husband Richard Briars and their daughters Lucy and Kate. She will be very much missed. Hashtag RIP Annie. Doctor Who fans pay tribute to Anne Davis following death. The veteran actress portrayed Jenny in Doctor Who alongside William Hartnell as the famous Time Lord. She also went on to play Mrs Singleton in Grange Hill in the 1990s before appearing in BBC shows Doctors and EastEnders. Tributes have poured in for the much-loved actress following the news of her passing. One fan wrote, Stupor star in the legendary Doctor Who adventure and shall never be forgotten by the fans. Those episodes get rewatched a lot in my house.
Another added, so sorry to hear this. I was lucky enough to meet both Richard and Anne in the past. Both such lovely people. Beautiful Anne, you will be so dearly missed, added a third. That article is by Kieran Doody. Recorded from the National on the 28th of April 2022, from the Culture Section. Scottish band Uninvited beat 4,000 others to win live lunch opportunity of a lifetime by Lauren Brownlee. A band from Glasgow has won the opportunity of a lifetime to perform in the world-famous Radio 1 Live Lounge. Uninvited was formed in August 2020 and is made up of Bex Young, lead guitar, Taylor Ray Dillon, bass and vocals, Gillian Delacama, guitar and vocals, and Fiorenzi Cocosa, drums. The group came together after a series of chance meetings on public transport in Glasgow. Aged 22, 23, 23 and 20, the group has received support from BBC Introducing in Scotland for their music and say bands including Haim, Radiohead, Fleetwood Mac and the 1975 are their musical inspirations. Radio 1's Live Lounge Introducing Search was founded as a partnership between BBC Radio 1 and BBC Music Introducing to find, nurture and develop the best undiscovered musicians in the UK, helping to propel them onto a national stage. Uninvited will now perform in Radio 1's Live Lounge on Thursday, April 28th, after claiming the top spot ahead of 4,000 other entries, they will perform an original song, Behind the Back Door, as well as a cover of Just For Me by BBC Radio 1 Sound of 2022 winner Pink Pantheris. Uninvited said, We absentmindedly submitted our song for the live lounge competition, not thinking we'd ever have a chance at winning. I'm sure we even forgot about applying. However, after finding out we were longlisted, then shortlisted, we couldn't believe it. The day we found out that we won was the most nerve-wracking day of our career, but we can't thank everyone at BBC enough for their support and for making our dreams come true. We're so excited for what's to come, including our very own headline tour this September. Chris Price, Head of Music, BBC Radio 1 added, In the second year of Live Lounge Introducing, the entries equaled the incredibly high standard from last year, further proving there is a wealth of exceptional emerging artists in the UK just waiting to be discovered. Congratulations to winners uninvited, who caught the panel's eye with their raw talent and energy, and who all the judges agreed will have a long career ahead of them. That article was by Lauren Brenley. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.